you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, and we'll be in verses 16 through the end of the chapter, verse 34. Uh, When Dorothy Gale emerged from her house, which had recently been relocated from the Great Plains of the United States to the district of the Munchkins in the Land of Oz on top of the soon-to-be shriveled body of the Wicked Witch of the East, uh, she saw this technicolor world that was unlike anything that she had ever laid eyes on. And after a few moments of stunned silence, if you've seen the movie The Wizard of Oz, she famously says to her terrier, Toto, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. Uh, Last week in Acts 17.15, Paul was whisked away from Berea. I'll put a map up here. We looked at some of the missionary journeys in Berea is up here in Macedonia, up there in the upper left-hand corner of the map. And you can see that Paul went from Berea Um, down to Athens. Silas and Timothy would remain in Berea, strengthening this newly established church, um, avoiding the ire of the Thessalonians who had recently arrived uh, to persecute them. And the men responsible for Paul took him down uh, by boat, we assume, down to Athens. That's as far as they went and stayed with him. And he sent a message back to, uh, to Silas and to Timothy um, saying, asking them to, to join back with him as soon as possible. But there Paul was in Athens. Uh, while Rome was the political capital of the Roman Empire, Athens was the intellectual capital. And it was a very impressive city. I, I pulled some pictures for you to see. These are just the ruins of Athens But just to give us a picture of what Athens probably was like in some ways when Paul was there, this is the marketplace that we'll read about a little bit later on. Um, Obviously would have looked different when Paul was there, but it gives you a feel for some of the scale of things. This is um, maybe a a theater of some sorts, Um, not the theater that Paul's going to be speaking in, but it gives you another picture of what Athens was like. This was a temple to Zeus. The um, construction began in the years before Paul would have arrived, but then was completed years after Paul had been uh, in Athens. Uh, This is a monument to someone that has been there since 300-something BC, uh, a monument there in Athens. And here's one of the most famous scenes in Athens, the the Parthenon. Um, And we know of that, this temple that was there. And there's... uh, a view of maybe what the city could have looked like in part when Paul was there. We're not really sure. Cities change a lot, don't they? Um, but just get to give you a feel for the, the scale of what this city was like. And I think that, that Paul, who had seen many amazing things on his, his journeys and seen many troubling places and had grown up in Troas, he was outside of maybe the incubator of Judaism in in Jerusalem. So he'd seen many things, but I just imagine that as Paul walked around Athens, he was struck in a unique way uh, at how different this city was from other places. Um, And if he hadn't been there alone, in my mind's eye, Paul would have been staring up maybe at the columns of the the Parthenon and, and turned to Silas and said, Silas, I don't think we're in Antioch anymore. 
This was a unique place. This was a place that was very different from anywhere that Paul had been. But whether in Antioch or in Athens, Paul knew something. He knew that he was still in the world that God had created and that God was drawing people to himself, no matter how poorly the people around him had distorted the revelation given to them in their hearts and in the world around them. And Paul looked at a city full of idols and he knew that even false worship revealed that the hearts of men and of the men and women of Athens were made to worship. They were made to worship something beyond themselves. And he knew that the, the message that had been given to him, that God in Christ had come into the world to make sense of all the deepest longings of every human soul, that that was true in Athens as much as it was true anywhere else. A lot has been written and said about Acts 17 and what Paul did and said in Athens, especially as how it relates to engaging with a a secular world and its philosophies and the truth of the gospel. It's a favorite chapter of missiologists, people who think about missions and and how we approach individuals and cultures with the truth about Jesus. And we're going to talk a little bit about that, about how we can engage others with the gospel. For the most part, I'll leave that to people that are much smarter than me and know more about it. Because I also think that Luke just wants us to watch Paul and to hear Paul and to be led to this that we would trust that the good news about Jesus is needed by and able to reach every soul. That our response is going to be trust. It's going to be faith. And what are we trusting? We're trusting that the good news about Jesus is needed by, is needed by and able to reach every soul. To trust that every soul is ultimately looking for the hope that is only found in Jesus Christ, and that no soul is so lost in their own sin or in their own intellect as to be unreachable. And so this call to trust is a a call to not be intimidated by Athens or by academics or by atheists or by agnostics or by average everyday people that we meet, to not feel that the message of Jesus is inadequate or not intelligent enough for any soul, but to know that it is sufficient to satisfy the God-sized longing that's in each and every person. It's a, this, this call to trust is a call to enter into religious institutions and secular marketplaces and to boldly engage with the culture that's around us, realizing that whoever we are, we are all worshipers. And if we're not worshiping God in Christ, then our misdirected worship is revealing in us a deep longing for God. And that that call is a reminder that if, if we are here right now worshiping Jesus as Lord in Christ, it's because in his grace, someone reasoned with us about the gospel and the spirit opened our eyes to see our idolatry and to turn us to faith in Christ. And so I wanna read Acts 17 verses 16 through 34. And as we read that, just to, to hear the spirit saying to us, Trust, trust that the good news about Jesus is needed by and able to reach every soul. So hear the word of the Lord from Acts 17, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that's, that's Timothy and Silas, waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. 
So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, or as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is, he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. You probably saw the structure of this passage. It's pretty easy. Verses 16 through 21 talk about what Paul did and felt while he was in Athens, as well as what the Athenians seemed to think of him, which is what sets up Paul's sermon in the Areopagus, which is in verses 22 through 31. And then we see the response of his hearers in verses 32 through 34. So we could jump right into the sermon, um, and some people do, but I think it's, it's the lead up to Paul's words. It's in those, that lead up that we get insight into why he said what he said. And so consider what Paul saw and, and felt as he spent time in Athens. And so first let's think about what Paul saw. What, that's hard to say, what Paul saw. Verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. As Paul walked around Athens, and even just looking, you know, walking around Athens with these pictures that we saw, you can get a feel for it. As he was walking around, he saw something 
that was nearly impossible to miss, he saw that there were idols everywhere. One author said that there were more gods in Athens than in all the rest of the country. And John Stott writes of this city, he says, quote, there were innumerable temples, shrines, statues, and altars. In the Parthenon stood a huge gold and ivory statue of Athena, whose gleaming spear point was visible 40 miles away. Elsewhere, there were images of Apollo, the city's patron, of Jupiter, Venus, Mercury, Bacchus, Neptune, Diana, The whole Greek Greek pantheon was there, all the gods of Olympus, and they were beautiful. They were made not only of stone and brass, but of gold, silver, ivory, and marble. And they had been elegantly fashioned by the finest Greek sculptors. Stott summarizes, this is what Paul saw, a city submerged in idols. And all of these idols filled the streets and the temples of Athens, and they revealed that Athens was not just a city full of idols, but it was a city full of false worship. It was a city filled with souls that were made to worship their creator and find joy and purpose in him, but souls that had chosen, as Paul would later write in Romans, to worship the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. You know, visible idols are not every city, not just Athens, every city, including Louisville, Kentucky is filled with worship because every human heart worships something or someone. And because we were created in the image of God to worship, but broken by the fall and the sin that fills our hearts, we make idols instead of worshiping the true and living God. John Calvin has said that the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols, just creates idols. That's what we do apart from Christ. Tim Keller helpfully brings these ideas of worship and idolatry together. And he also brings these ideas from from Athens to our own hearts and lives. He writes this, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to to give you what only God can give. You see how we all practice idolatry? Keller goes on, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. As we look around our world, just as Paul looked around Athens, what do we see? We could call it by many names, but idolatry and worship still fit really well. We are submerged in idols and worship. We see people who are made in the image of God and people immersed in the revelation of God that's seen in the world around us and people who have chosen to sinfully seek after false gods, gods like money and sex and power. They look after these things to satisfy satisfy themselves People have chosen to to worship themselves rather than God. And we can see it well in our world because we can feel it and see it in our own hearts. We too turn to worship God's gifts rather than God. And we turn to places other than Christ to find our joy, to find our value and our significance. 
And so Paul looked around Athens and he saw idols. But as we think about that, he also saw people worshiping, people seeking significance and meaning and value and security in the things that God had created rather than seeking them in God himself. And what he saw with his eyes went down deep into his heart and affected him there. And so notice next, not just what Paul saw, but what Paul felt. What did Paul feel? It says in verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them, his spirit was provoked within him. As he considered the city submerged, drowning in idols, verse 16 says that his spirit was provoked. Other translations say he was greatly distressed, deeply troubled, disturbed, upset, stirred, irritated, exasperated. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this is the word that is used of God's reaction to idolatry. The most well-known example we might think about is when the Israelites made the golden calf and in doing it, they provoked the Lord. And the Lord there is described as jealous. Jealousy is often seen to be a wrong emotion for God to have, but there is a a jealousy that is justified and a jealousy that is, is righteous. Think about when a third party seeks to enter into and break a marriage covenant. When that happens, a husband or a wife is rightfully jealous. There is righteous anger that rises up in the one who has been besmirched, the one who has been dishonored. Tim Keller says that the opposite of love is not always hate, but it may also be indifference. To not be jealous in such a situation would reveal a lack of true love. To not care that the covenant is broken would reveal that there a lack of love. And so God says to his people in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And so Paul has found that his own heart is in tune with the heart of God. And as he looks at the false worship around him, he is jealous for God's glory. He knows that the people of Athens are giving glory not only to lifeless idols, but to the demonic forces behind them. And they're giving glory to God's gifts rather than to God. And they're distorting God's gifts and they're twisting God's gifts. If we had to summarize the complex emotion that, is, that, is, uh, that Paul is feeling when we're told that he's provoked, we could call it zeal for God's glory. What does Paul feel? He feels zeal for God's glory. He feels a passion for God's glory, a desire to see idols destroyed so that people would rightly worship the one true and living God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. He has a zeal for God's glory. And if zeal is what Paul feels, then we might imagine that he's going to respond just like Jesus did when zeal for his father's house consumed him. You remember what he did? He drove the money changers out of the temple courts. Is that what Paul does? It's not what he does. We don't see Paul tearing down idols and smashing images in the street. It's not a one-to-one parallel with Jesus because that was the Jewish temple where where the one true and living God was supposed to be worshiped. But even if if Paul had wanted to do that, he didn't. Rather, what does he do? He reasons with the people of the city, which gives us insight into another emotion that Paul felt. Paul felt a zeal for God's glory, but we could also say that he felt a compassion for lost people. He felt a compassion for lost people. 
springing up in part because he had once been the same way. He's filled with zeal as he looks around, but he's also like Jesus in Matthew 9.36. When Jesus says, when he, it says, when he saw the crowds, you remember this? He had compassion on them. Why? Because they were harassed. And they were helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Paul didn't rush into the streets to just condemn those that visited temples. He's not going to be shy about the reality of coming judgment. We see that in his sermon but he's also filled with the kind of compassion that we might feel for a a child who is lost in the woods. If you think about that image, a child lost in the woods, wandering around, trying to find their way home, I feel a a sense of deep compassion. Or you might think about someone who's um, worked their whole life to find joy in something. And they finally realize at the end of their life as they're laying in a hospital bed that they'd been chasing all the wrong dreams. They'd been looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places. Do you feel compassion for that? I think that's how Paul felt. And he's gonna say later on that the people of Athens, they were like blind men and women who were groping around in the dark, looking for God, but just grabbing all the wrong things. And so Paul has compassion for the men and women of Athens. And it's this zeal for God's glory and compassion for lost people that needs to fill us as well. And not just one or the other, but both. Some of us have a a leaning towards one or the other, right? Some of us have bought into the indifference of our age that that fails to realize that the idolatry that surrounds us is a mocking of God and it robs God of the glory that is due only to him. And And if we have stepped into indifference and we lack zeal, then we need to pray for a righteous jealousy for the glory of God. Others of us have have maybe forgotten the greatness of God's mercy to us. That that while we we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That as 1 Peter 2.25 says, we were once strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of our soul, overseer of our souls. And so we need to extend compassion. We need to have a zeal for God's glory. And you have compassion for lost people, both. And flowing from this zeal and this compassion, Paul spoke. And so we move on to Paul's reaction. What Paul saw, what Paul felt, maybe we say how Paul responded. How did Paul respond? As, as we're filled with a desire to speak like Paul did, we have to remember that it was all flowing from from what he saw and he felt. John Stott says, if we do not speak like Paul because we do not feel like Paul, this is because we do not see like Paul. Until we see like Paul, we won't feel like Paul and we won't act like Paul. But when we do, when zeal and compassion, the same zeal and compassion that God feels, when that fills us, then we're going to be compelled to do something. We're not going to be content to let the world go to hell in a handbasket any more than we would be content to allow a child to wander lost in the woods and not move heaven and earth to find her. When we rightly see and feel, then we will do whatever it takes to help people to know by the power of God's Spirit working in and through us that God in Christ alone deserves worship and he alone will satisfy the deepest longings of their souls that they're looking for. 
Paul doesn't rail against the idolaters. He doesn't smash their idols with some sort of a sledgehammer, but he doesn't indifferently allow them to live in their ignorance. Rather, he reasons with them just as he did in Thessalonica. Not surprisingly, he began in the synagogue, but he doesn't stay there, does he? Luke also records that he went to the marketplace and it says he went there every day and talked with the people who just happened to be there. From what I've read about this marketplace, it was a it was a place where not just goods were sold, but also ideas and philosophies were shared. It was like a Starbucks, but not a Starbucks where people just look for the comfy chairs and then put their headphones on once they find them, right? It's like a Starbucks where people show up and they want to talk to people. They're, they're open to listening about the philosophies and the ideas of the day. And that's what was going on here in Athens. People were just we read later on, they, were, they just spent their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. They wanted to know what was going on and people were talking and Paul entered into that. It's hard to say if we have anything like that in our day and age, but if you can find a spot like that or people like that, we need to step into that. We need to enter into those conversations. It was here that he met the philosophers of the day. He met the Epicureans who sought pleasure through a simple life, free from pain and fear And he met the Stoics who believed happiness was found in not being controlled by our desire for pleasure or our fear of pain. If you want to know more about the Stoics or the Epicureans, I invite you to read about it. That's my summary based on a couple sermons and Wikipedia. So um, I, I don't know that we have to understand what the Stoics and the Epicureans taught and believed to really see what's going on here. But what we know is that he's interacting with the major ideas of the day, with the people of that day. And these and others heard Paul's message. They heard it in different ways. Some people said it was foolish. What is this babbler talking about? He's just going on and on about stuff. And some thought they they misunderstood his teaching. They thought it was some new teaching that was filling Athens. And yet what he said was intriguing enough. Uh, it, It wasn't so out there that they rejected him, but he was engaging with them well enough that they thought, hey, let's take this guy before the Areopagus, which would have been some sort of council of sorts, it it seems, where new ideas would be be judged and they would be maybe proclaimed if you could keep teaching them in the city or maybe they would be deemed as subversive and and that person needed to be censored and they weren't allowed to talk anymore. But he was brought before this, this council, as it were. And so Paul's given the opportunity to speak to this council. You can call it a sermon if you like. You can call it a address. I, I don't know. I call it a sermon. And we find that this sermon that he gives is unlike anything that we've read so far in Acts. And yet it's also the exact same thing that Paul always says. It's totally different. And it's exactly the same. It's different because his point of contact is not found in the scriptures. When he spoke in the synagogue or he spoke to the God-fearing Greeks, he referenced the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. And he showed that Jesus had fulfilled these things. But these hearers in Athens, they had little to no knowledge or little to no respect for the Hebrew scriptures. And so that, that point of contact isn't going to work. He's never going to get a hearing before the Areopagus if he starts referencing the Hebrew scriptures. No one's going to listen to him. So he begins instead by finding a point of contact within their own understanding. And he begins by complimenting their religiosity. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He says that, that they appreci- he appreciates the way that they're seeking to know the deeper things of life. I don't think this is a backhanded compliment. 
from Paul, oh, I see you guys are really religious. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I think he's saying, you guys are trying to find the truth. And I appreciate the way you're, you're going hard after it. I don't think he's mocking them when he says, I saw this altar to an unknown God. Rather, I think he's being very bold. He, he says, I saw this altar to an unknown God. And I appreciate that you guys are saying we don't have all the answers. We're a little bit ignorant about something. And let me tell you something. I actually know what you're ignorant about. How bold is that? Paul in Athens with all these philosophers steps in and says, you know, you guys have a lot of stuff, but I noticed this God that you're recognizing you don't know everything. I know the thing you don't know. That's bold. That's powerful. That's what it takes to proclaim the gospel in this world. Not in an arrogant way though, right? We're not stepping into the marketplace and saying we've got all the answers, but we're saying God has revealed the answers and and I want you to see it because he will reveal it to you as well. He knows what they're looking for and he shows even later on that their poets and their authors are scratching at the surface. They're getting close. They're looking for Christ and he can help them find him. And so in this, we're encouraged, I think, to not only know the truth of the gospel that we are to proclaim, but we should also know our audience. We should, we should know what makes the people around us tick. And with compassion, we should identify how we see God drawing them to himself, even though they may be distorting it. We should primarily be students of the scriptures. I don't want to deny that. But we should also try to understand the culture around, culture around us and the people that are in our spheres of influence. We should know what's in their hearts. We should listen to music. And the, the strange thing about being a, a Christian is you can't go to the theater, you can't listen to music, you can't watch something on TV and not interpret it through the lens of what we know to be true. And you can see how people are thinking and processing and how people, as he says later on, are groping for the truth. Find those things, identify them and say, you know what? I heard this and I can hear people seeking out the truth. And so this is a different approach from Paul than we have seen before. But as I said, it's the exact same message because what's his goal? He's trying to get to Jesus. He's trying to get to Jesus and show that Jesus is Lord and Christ. And he gets to Jesus by way of making this contact and then going all the way back to creation. Lots of ways to break down Paul's sermon here. I liked the way John Stott did it. He said it's a, that, that this is what Paul's revealing. He's revealing who God is. And he gives five characteristics about God. Let me read them quickly. I can give them to you later if you want to write them down. But he says, God is the creator of the universe. God is the sustainer of life. God is the ruler of the nations. God is the father of human beings. And God is the judge of the world. Which is right on. Way to go. Stop. Man, I love it. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the ruler. He's the father. He's the judge. But I think we can think about all those things. And I think as we pray this this afternoon, that's where I want us to, to go in some ways. But I also think that Paul is revealing, in revealing who God is, he's also showing the Athenians the foolishness of their city's obsession with idols and temples and localized deities. And he's thereby paving the way for Jesus Christ. He's breaking down all these things that they are honoring so that he can build up Christ in its place. And he shows us that 
that while we can find a, we want to find a point of contact with people, as Sinclair Ferguson was said in a sermon, he said, we also want to then find their point of inconsistency. Find the point of contact, but find then where people are inconsistent because every belief system outside of, outside of the, of Jesus, of faith in Christ is inconsistent with the world. So we help to, people to see there's holes in their philosophies, contradictions in their closely held beliefs. And so let me try to just walk through Paul, what I think is Paul's logic, okay? He's reasoning, remember? His basic idea is this, that God is the creator. And therefore, we should not think that we could ever create an image that's like him or that we could ever offer God anything that he would need. God's the creator, he's saying. So why would you think you could build something that looked like him or represented him rightly? How could you create something to represent the creator? And how could you give anything that the creator of all things would need? So follow the logic, okay? And you can trace it there in the verses. So verse 24, God made the world and everything in it. Therefore, he's the Lord of heaven and earth. He, he made it, so he's in charge of it. And if he's the, the creator and the Lord of all things, then it, it makes no sense that he would live in a temple. How could the God who made the whole world then dwell inside some temple in Athens? That doesn't make any sense, Paul says. This is not a new thought to New Testament Christianity. I always think about Solomon. He's dedicating this big, beautiful temple for the one true and living God to live in. And then he says at the dedication of this huge, beautiful temple, he says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How how much less this house that I have built? Solomon understood it. and, And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying God doesn't dwell in temples. And he says that God is the creator of everything. He's he's the creator and sustainer of us all, of of human beings. He gives us life and he gives us breath and he gives us every good thing. All the good things that they're wrongly worshiping instead of worshiping the one who had given them to him, to them. And, And if he's the one who gives all things to all people, then it would be foolish to think that we could then give something to him. You can think about how, you know, when kids are very young, and at Christmas time, they want to buy presents for you. Well, who pays for the present? I do. <laughs> I'm thankful for the thought. But in some ways, it's, it's from me to me, but sort of from them, right? Isn't that how, if, when we think about God, it's how could we give God anything that he needs? God is not served by human hands as though he needed something? God needs something from us? Paul says that's ridiculous. And so if he's made us, then how could we think that we could make an image that looks like him? How could we make something to represent God if we have been made by him? He's the God that determines the course of history. He determines the course of our lives, including geographical boundaries of our lives, where you live and move. And in all of his sovereign control and his creative power and his sustaining grace, he's revealing himself to us so that all of our idol-making and seeking of pleasure are actually a revealing of the fact that we're looking for him, we're trying to find him. In all of this, Paul is showing the, the foolishness of thinking that we can localize God, that we can make an idol that looks like God, or that we can in fact do anything that would please God, that we could give him something that he needs. And that foolishness, and ignorance and rebellion, he says, in God's mercy, 
has been overlooked. Looking around at this city, he has a zeal for God's glory and he knows that if God wanted to, he could crush it all. You can see it almost as you look at that picture, right? He could destroy it all if he wanted to. But our God is patient. And yet Paul is very clear. He says, but there's a day, it's a fixed day. <laughs> it's coming, it's, it's fixed, it's certain. God knows exactly when it is and it's coming and he's going to judge the world by Jesus and all people will be judged unless they repent and believe. God is compassionate and he is long suffering towards us and towards all people. But there's a day coming when all false worship will be exposed and it will be judged for the rebellion that it truly is. And the one who's going to judge, who is it? It's Jesus. Jesus Christ is the one who's going to judge the world. I'll be honest, I just noticed it's, it doesn't even mention Jesus though, does it? He doesn't get a chance to. Because he says uh, that the one who's going to judge the world has been, we, we've made certain that he is going to be the one because God has shown he's, he is the one by the fact that he raised him from the dead, verse 31. And at that point, verse 32 says, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. They cut him off at that point. Okay, Paul, you've gone too far. Resurrected from the dead. We're not listening to this anymore. The idea of a resurrected savior was something that they just couldn't abide. But some believed. Some wanted to hear a little bit more. And some believed, including this guy named Dionysius. It says he was Dionysius the Areopagite. Here's a guy so closely associated with this place where Paul is speaking that he's called an Areopagite. Maybe he's part of this council. And he hears Paul, and it's not foolishness to him. It's the wisdom of God, and his eyes are opened, and he becomes a follower of Jesus along with this woman named Damaris and others. Was there a, a revival that day in the Areopagus? No. No, people didn't flood the aisles and repent. But you know what? Paul stepped into that place where God had led him, where he had the opportunity to speak, and he trusted in that moment that the gospel could reach anyone. And it did. It didn't reach everyone, but it reached some. There were those in Athens who believed because Paul was willing to do something he he was willing to trust that the good news about Jesus is needed by and able to reach every soul. He wasn't intimidated by Athens. He wasn't intimidated by the Epicureans or the Stoics or all their learning. He wasn't intimidated by the universities. He stepped in and he believed. And so I asked, do we believe the same? Do we see the idolatry around us? Do we feel a zeal for God's glory and a compassion for lost sinners? And are we willing to do the hard work of studying the scriptures to know the gospel and then studying the culture, studying the people that are around us and engaging with people in the marketplaces, in the workplaces and the areas that we are? It's scary. Can you imagine? Can you imagine Paul walking into this place with all these people? I'm sure he, I, he was bold, but I'm sure he was also nervous and didn't really know what to say but he did it because he trusted that the good news about Jesus was needed by everyone and able to save everyone. Do we believe that? 
I wonder what else Paul would have said. So now I'm going a little bit beyond what's here. <laughs> be totally honest about that. But what I know to be true about the gospel. What else did he say that, what else would he have said? And what, and what did he say to those that wanted to hear more? How, did he, how would he have finished this sermon? I, I don't know for sure, but I think if they'd let him continue, I think he would have gone on to say that, that this God, a God who can't be served by human hands, has in fact served us. That this God to whom we can give nothing has given his son. That this God whom we could never form an image of or fit into a temple has actually sent his son to tabernacle and to dwell among us. And that Jesus is the image of the invisible God and is in fact God himself. You can't build an idol to represent God. But you know what God can do? He can send his very son into the world. And it's Jesus Christ who reveals exactly who the father is. And Jesus, who's the creator, the sustainer of all things, the ruler of all the nations, the father of all human beings, the judge of all the earth, he humbled himself to walk this earth in holiness and then to die on the cross and to pay the penalty for our sins. And let me remind you or tell you for the first time that Jesus doesn't want you to build him a house. And he doesn't want you to fill the world with idols of him. And he doesn't want you to give him anything because he doesn't need anything from you. Rather, he wants us to believe, to repent of our idolatry, to repent of all of our false worship, and to believe to believe who he is and what he's done. We're going to take the Lord's Supper in a moment here. And in this meal, we're reminded that, that Jesus is the one who has given himself to us. He says, here, take, this is my body. Take, this is my blood. He has given himself to us so that we could be forgiven and so that we could know the joy that only Jesus can give us. I'm reminded as we think about these impressive buildings that were in Athens and surely these beautiful idols and sculptures to the gods. As we think about that, we realize that we don't have any of that, do we? We don't have any images. We don't have great buildings. Grace Fellowship Church, we don't even have a building. <laughs> but we don't need that. Because our faith is not rooted in images. It's not rooted in idols. It's not rooted in the sacrifices that we could give to God or in the images that we would make of him. What's, what, are the, what are the pictures that we have? Well, we have a cross and that represents the core of who we are. But of course, what has Jesus given us? The symbols of our faith, bread and a cup something that Christ has given us, that he's given us his body, that he's given us his blood. What a wonderful thing that the symbol that Jesus has given us is not something that we bring to church, that we bring when we come to worship him. It's something that's given to us.
we take in, we eat it, we drink it, and we remind ourselves that this God is beyond anything that we could imagine. And he's not served by our hands as if he needed anything from us, but rather he has served us. He has humbled himself and he's given himself to us so that we could be saved and satisfied for all of eternity.